2: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I no, no. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the
3: singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A
1: former colony won the right to determine its own destiny.
3: Hello and welcome back to Mid-Atlantic. As you've probably heard me say before, uh, Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of great independently produced podcasts from all over the world. Uh, each month we nominate a show to specifically to promote, and this month is Dominic Perry's excellent The History of Egypt podcast. Um, why don't you go over to the Agora Podcast Network or to iTunes or Stitcher or a podcast of your choice today to give it a listen. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Roy Phil Brown. Today I'm joined by journo and map geek John Ellidge in London and by yogic Democratic Party operative Reggie (laughs) Hubbard in Washington, D.C. On a week where everyone is talking about the 25th Amendment, we ask, does Trump lack dignity? Is he just undisciplined? Or is he just mentally ill?
1: I heard poorly rated Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve, insisted on joining me. She was bleeding badly from a facelift, so I said no. Oi, oy, yeah. This is from Trump. So with healthcare and russia and a travel ban this is what the guy who's supposed to be running the country is tweeting about but this his, is what he's aren't tweeting you about you with national pride yeah. <laughs> It just makes him sound so ignorant. Like, when you're gonna...
4: When you can't beat someone with a point or information, so you have to go to name-calling, it's a race to the bottom,
1: and no one wins. He's supposed to be above all of that. And there have been many presidents, Republican and Democrat, President Obama, President Bush, I could go through the list, that get criticized by the media... And they don't act like this. This is embarrassing because other countries read this Twitter feed. And there's a lot of people out there that are defending his policies. And they look at this and they're like, come Wait, on, Well, ma'am. you were yelling. Come on. Her, she was, yelling, was yelling, yelling in her dressing room. Are you kidding me? When they Just read her like the that. tweet.
4: And, and the, the thing that's <laughs> terrible is that it's going to be in the National Archives. Yeah. This, this is, tweet. This goes oh, it's gonna in. It's going to be in the library. It's going to be in the presidential library.
3: In the presidential Over to you in Washington. From a political
0: operative side, I think he just lacks discipline. Luckily, from my perspective, I'm glad he lacks that discipline because um, were they a little bit more disciplined with the control they have of the Congress, um, they could do a lot more political damage than they're able to do. Uh, I think the fact that the president of the United States has an active Twitter account that he not only uses, but does so in a disparaging way against members of the media, if not regular citizens. I mean, I think that in and of itself shows a lack of political savvy and discipline uh, to have any lasting effect in terms of governance here, uh, which I said, from my perspective,
3: is, is quite outstanding. But I think it's unfortunate for the country and the world. John, isn't it true, though, that this Twitter thing is probably one of the key reasons why this man became president in the first place?
2: I mean, yeah, we're living in the age of of. Uh, viral politics like it's much easier to get your message out there to get the kind of attention that can get you to to the, the the top of the list of candidates if you are capable of garnering that kind of free media which you know trump for all his you know almost infinite flaws is very very good at getting people to sit up and pay attention to what he's doing I mean, you remember how in the campaign at the start of it, Huffington Post made a big thing about covering him in their comedy section. And this was meant to be, you know, a way of undermining him and showing they weren't taking him seriously. But they were still covering the guy. They were still giving him attention. And that would be because, you know, when you write about it, people will click. When, you, when people click, you get advertising dollars. So... <laughs> I, I, I don't want to go as far as to say this is a clever strategy on his part because I I simply don't believe he's capable of, of uh, being either clever or strategic. But nonetheless, it's something that has clearly worked incredibly well in terms of getting him to where he is.
0: Yeah, Rufo, let me say also that with response to uh, the Twitter thing, Donald Trump has also been on TV for the past 20 years in the United States. You know, I saw a, uh, Ghostbusters two this weekend and Donald Trump had a cameo appearance in Ghostbusters Two, which came out in nineteen eighty nine. And then he had The Apprentice and was on like the World Wrestling Federation and all these other things all throughout these pop culture memes in the nineties and too. He was even on Sex in the City. So he's been a bit of a pop culture phenomenon. So he has used Twitter to his advantage, but has also had the benefit of being have, having years of free advertising.
3: Okay, Rachel. But we know now if the leaks are to be believed that many people in the administration and in the upper echelons of the republican party are now seriously worried about him who is going to be that republican of note that breaks first and actually said and actually says this is unusual this is strange or is it just the new presidential as trump said
0: i think that it's um well, John McCain has already been out there, but John McCain also doesn't have the clout that he once had. In, in terms of uh, other Republican senators, I really don't know. Um, we have People have to get a little bit more worried and sense their electoral lives at stake before anyone has the courage to stand up to this guy. Do, do, uh, do you
3: think we need a couple of congressmen to say this?
0: I think that... Uh, if it starts in the Congress, it, it, would, it would be helpful. But I think what would really break, because impeachment proceedings happen in the Senate. So, like, um, if, if a major senator were to be like, well, look here, what are we doing? Then I think it would have more, much more weight than someone in the Congress. It would have to be someone like Paul Ryan. Um, but Paul Ryan has been talking on
3: both sides of his face. So... <laughs> So we have a president who um, says that his behaviour is the new presidential. But by all accounts, uh, John, senators that are crafting the new health care bill have absolutely ignored him because they say he doesn't have a grasp of the facts. If this is the case and we have somebody who temperamentally is probably not suited to the job, doesn't have a grasp for the facts, what, where does policy go in, in the next four years of this, uh, this administration?
2: Well, one of the
3: advantages of the
2: separation of powers is laid out in the U.S. Constitution is that the president doesn't actually have to make the policy. You know, all that can happen in Congress. He just needs to not get in the way and sign something at the end of the day. You know, I'm sure if they kind of, you know, if they, I I, I suspect if congressional leaders are are, are nice enough to him at the right moment, that that will probably be enough for the guy. It's not like he doesn't care about healthcare one way or the other. He cares about his ratings. So I I don't think it's necessarily a big problem in terms of domestic policy. It's sort of down to congressional leadership. I'd be much more concerned about the impact it's going to have on global affairs, because something the president can do without uh, without recourse to Congress is to completely screw up America's position as the last remaining superpower. So, you know, there's one to watch.
3: Reggie, is that really where the Trump presidency might make its real um, impact? It's not going to be on domestic policy because there's going to be nothing really coming out of the White House. Um, He can just sign bills if Congress and the Senate can actually agree to something. But really, it's going to be on the world stage. And if so, shouldn't the rest of us on planet Earth be incredibly worried? Because again... He hasn't got really the uh, the fundamental uh, chops on global policy, has he?
0: The short answer is no. I had a, I had a lunch this week uh, with a, a college classmate of mine who's in the foreign service, and the level of distress on this gentleman's face when he was like, "We are frittering away years of soft power that we have accumulated through, you know, World War II, like the Cold War, and these sorts of things." And the seeming lack of appreciation for the negligence of frittering away of this power, which is necess- necessary to maintaining the world order, is astonishing. Uh, so there are a significant number of people in the foreign service who view it as a matter of patriotic duty to stay and try and like keep keep the child from bashing the machine. Um, And to your point, there there isn't much recourse that Congress can do um, outside of having an absolute majority to check this gentleman's power. Um, And those elections don't happen for another year and a half.
3: John, you're a presidential historian. I suppose the one thing you could say about Trump is that he could go back to that late 19th century model of presidents who basically were all kind of ciphers, weren't they? They didn't really do anything. They just warmed the seat for the next guy that came in. There's 20, 30 years worth of American presidents in the late 1800s where we all struggle to remember their names. So maybe Trump, this is how to make America great again, have a president who doesn't really actually do anything.
0: Uh, Do not not be so disparaging about Rutherford B. Hayes. Do not be so disparaging (laughs) about Rutherford B. Hayes. Okay, thank you.
2: Wasn't Rubber B. Hayes the guy who did the 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 compromise that screwed over the south for the next time. Oh years? yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, like he's not he's not <laughs> the, the ideal role model here, is he? But yeah, I mean okay, there's all these guys, there's like, you know, Chester Arthur, there's like I mean James Garfield <laughs> at least got shot, so people still don't remember that, I suppose. But, yeah, I think the difference is, okay. a lot of those guys between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, they're not really – they get a couple of lines in the history books. It's not – it's a different model of the presidency. But I can't see Trump following that line because I really – I mean, can you imagine the history books 100 years hence not dedicating, you know, entire volumes to Donald Trump and just like, what the hell happens here, guys? It's just he's not going to just be a footnote. He's not going to sort of vanish – into the archive in the way that, I mean, that Nate, tell me anything about Chester Arthur go on, you know, Reggie, you're an American. Tell me what you know about Chester. <laughs> Arthur. What did he do? He was a, it's not going to be that guy. Right? Yeah. He was, he was a Democrat. Yeah. There you go. He, he uh, had a, an exchange of letters with, with a woman who became his conscience, And he went to see her one day. That's the only thing I can remember about Chester Arthur. He was quite portly, I think. I think he was a big lad. There you go. That's my Chester Chester (laughs) Arthur hour. This is more coverage than he's received since leaving
3: office in whenever the hell it was. So, you know. Late 1800s, Reggie. Oh, um, yeah. w- without saying that the Trump presidency is going to crash and burn because you know we're all from the the other side of the political spectrum. His approval ratings are what in in the mid 30s, so they haven't completely yeah. utterly collapsed yet. No, Surely surely this is just um, a liberal a liberal conspiracy. The fact that we see the fact that he tweets at 6 a.m. as some sort of mental weakness, the fact that he is attacking uh, the the press, Mika Brzezinski, saying that she's, she's bleeding from her face, etc, etc. There are swathes of Americans and swathes of America who still are invested in this person and see him as championing them. Isn't, isn't the fact that this is still the case incredibly significant? All this talk of being presidential is just hokum.
0: Yeah, I think that um, the one thing that is cannot be understated is that 62 million people voted for this guy, uh, this gentleman who is now president of the United States. So factor in a decline of 50% uh, of that population, uh, there's that still 30 million people who potentially uh, support this gentleman like uh, prime face faces just like, just, just on general principle. Uh, I do think, though, that uh, from my other work that, I, that I've done on the road, uh, that there's also a significant number of people who are having second thoughts um, and a significant number of people who may have been dormant
3: uh, in the political process that are they're now getting more engaged. But, but to your point... Con, um, con- convince me about these people who have a second thought. So these are Trump voters. Right.
0: Uh, the health care bill is terrifying people because it is essentially taking healthcare away from 24 million people in a system that is already one of the most uh, convoluted systems in the world, especially in the the industrialized world. So there are people who essentially feel like they've got a bait and switch. Um, I don't know what that translates to in terms of electoral successes yet, but there, there is a rising number of people that are like, wait, look here. You're going to do what? Like, I need this. If you take this away from me, I'm going to die. So, again, I don't really – the unfortunate – it's times like these where I really, really love the U.K. system because I wish we could just call a vote of no confidence and get this dude out of here. But, like, we just don't have that mechanism. Uh, so people kind of have to deal with this for at
3: least two more years. John? From the the perspective of Britain, none of this makes any kind of sense. But again, you're a man that not only likes a map, but you like a little bit of history. Can we think of any time where we've had such concerns over the mental capacity of a British prime minister? Because... Apart mm. from mm. Churchill's later years, people saw him as doddery and he's supposed to wet himself in, in cabinet. I, I can't really think of anybody. And that was just purely down to old age with uh, with old Churchill, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think Reggie makes a good point, that it's just
2: it is much easier to get rid of someone under the British system where it's a parliamentary democracy. And, you know, the party themselves can remove him. There is no equivalent mechanism for that in the U.S., Harold Wilson, I think, had a bit of a funny turn in his latter years, but he he, he stood down of his own accord. Yeah, exactly. His own yeah. timetable. Um, so it's I don't think there's anything remotely comparable in all I don't think there's ever been a moment where we've been stuck with someone. Because at the point where people start getting a bit weird and messianic, which, you know, from a certain from a certain perspective, both Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher kind of, I mean, neither of them are on the Trump spectrum, but they both kind of went a bit cray cray in their in their later years <laughs> and on both occasions their parties worried about what
3: this would do to them and remove those leaders it just I,
2: isn't that mechanism in the u.s
3: yeah I, I suppose the big difference is the fact that that person is in the u.s is actually elected by the people whereas in britain they're not it's actually the party so there are much more easily in, you know informal ways for the party just to go mm, you need to take a walk uh you know Sir or, or madam, you know, you you are destroying us. Whereas in America, that person can still always turn around and say, well, I've been elected by the people, so to speak.
2: But um, I mean, Regi- what's really what's what's worrying a bit looking at the approval ratings is, I mean, the, the last set I saw. Suggested that actually in, in white America, Trump's approval rating is still quite quite high. Absolutely. And okay, you know, white yeah. America is not the is not the political force it once was. But you know, as as the token white guy on the podcast, I kinda of feel the need to apologize <laughs> on behalf of the white community and say that he doesn't he doesn't represent our values.
3: <laughs> nice. Well played, so uh Mike Pence, is he gonna be the most consequential vice president ever, Reggie?
0: Uh, I think that the previous two... He's just
3: reshuffled his team as well, hasn't
0: he? Yeah. Uh, Dick Cheney and Joe Biden, I think, uh, are the top two in recent memory of having the most influence on policy and uh, the the functioning of the administration. I think Vice President Pence has the unique opportunity and the unique place of being seen as the sanity uh, to the insanity of the president. Granted, that the vice president's definition of sanity from a policy perspective, to me, is still quite insane. Um, But he has an opportunity to be the counterbalance to what seems like an increasingly unstable uh, president. So that can't be understated. And again, as we talked about earlier, should someone in the Republican Party um, of heft realize that the uh, presidency of Donald Trump is a disaster to the party? Pence would be the would be the standard bearer um, as the highest ranking Republican.
3: John, I think maybe we, we've kind of put our, our finger on this and you as our token white person, you can explain this to us. OK, so um, yeah. <laughs> Trump's approval ratings are not quite disastrous yet. Yes, there are historical. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. But they are bad for a president only five, six months into his presidency. Yes. But his, right. historically, president, presidents have been as low as this. They, ha- they have been. They have been. Right. Right. Yes. So he's not at absolute lows. So, and he hasn't been a, a massive drag so far. If you look at the special elections throughout America on the Republican Party, has he? So so, so, maybe John, as our token white person, please um, you know explain to to us um you know not non white folks here, um, how somebody can act as boorish as he can, but still um, it doesn't have a drag on the party of which he supposedly represents
2: I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying there's kind of a lot of racists out there
3: hmm. i I think it's Uh, You know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, one second, I'm not going to allow you just to say it's just racism. I think there's a massive cultural element to this. And I think, you know, he feels to a lot of people like a non-establishment figure, doesn't he? So, and if you feel he's, he's anti the system, of course, it's total bunkum. The man is a billionaire. He's completely made that money through the system and through inherited wealth. But if you feel, that he's sticking his two fingers up to uh, to the media, into the liberal elites, you can certain, you can maybe let a certain type of behaviour let it slide and say, well, hey, hum, he, he's kind of one of us, and I've kind of answered my question for you. But go on, you're you're going to give me a, a more considered and journalistic uh, repast. I think the
2: key thing you have to look at in terms of last year's election result compared to where things were four years earlier is it's very easy to kind of just look at it at a state level. when actually, I think it's more useful looking at the swing in individual counties. And generally speaking, the places that moved from from the blue side to the red side of the map were places that had kind of been left behind a little bit by by the modern world. You know, the jobs have moved on. Maybe the factory or the mine has closed down. They do tend to be very white places, but I think that's largely because, you know, non-white people are vastly less likely to vote for this guy. Um, All of this is the same sort of dynamic we saw in the Brexit referendum last year, where I think there is a frustration that people feeling that the world has changed under them and they have not benefited from from the recovery and they don't like the way the world has changed. And, you know, the change... Racism is a part of that story, but so is economic anxiety. So is yeah, cultural location. anxiety. Yeah, it's just a concern that, that the world has changed and they don't like the way it's going and they want to send some kind of a message. Um, so, so, yeah, you do get these kind of... I, I, I found the term left-behind towns quite, quite useful because I think it's not so much the towns as, as the people that are left behind. It's places where, yeah. you know, if you go to college... If you graduate college, um, you're most likely to move to a big city, which will be yeah. diverse. where you're more likely to, So, you know, by definition, the most educated, most liberal people move out. And it's it's the people who are left behind are, are the guys who, who are more likely to, to vote for these kind of nativist eruptions. So, Green. yeah, ra- race, race is, in all seriousness, a part of the picture, I think. But you're right. It's, of course, it's not the whole thing. It's much more complicated than that. Yeah.
3: Okay, Reggie, so um I think I've probably asked you this question before, but you're gonna gonna hit me with this in a much more um eloquent and uh hmm. considered way. Yeah. If Trump's appeal to West Virginia was I'm gonna bring coal mining jobs back, which gave really? people a sense of yes, this was the halcyon days of blue-collar America. This is a time when I as a working man could go out. Uh, Do an honest day's work and get an honest day's pay and look after my family. My wife didn't even need to leave the door to go and work. If we know as as sensible human beings in 2017, coal mining jobs are not coming back. Mm. What is that economic message that the Democratic Party can say to rural Pennsylvania, to West Virginia, which is going to resonate, which is going to to give working class men, white working class men, hope in the future. Because John's put his finger on it. This is about economic hope or a lack of economic hope. And that message of turning the clock back has has resonance with people. So how can the Democratic Party use identity politics in its favour going forward?
0: Uh, I'm going to, in typical philosophy major fashion, I'm going to pivot a bit. The, um, I gave a a talk a couple weeks ago at my college reunion, uh, where a similar question came up and people, um, as you might imagine in a place like Yale, especially at a 20 year reunion, uh, people were just like, I can't understand why these, why people like give sympathy to these racists and all this other stuff. And, you know, liberals have different facts and conservatives have different facts and, And I basically was like, listen, you know, as someone who spent two years on the campaign trail and had a lot of conversations with these people, um, we may have different sets of facts, but we all have the same feelings. And the thing that needs to be done in terms of like a political message is to speak to these feelings. Like um, if I come to you and say, hello, sir, I know that you haven't had any jobs here in 30 years and you feel economically dislocated and you're a bit of a racist, but would you be interested in you know, some workforce retraining and redevelopment. You know, the person is going to be like, what are you talking about? So in terms of a message, I think the narrative has to be more based on feelings. Like, you know, as someone who heard many times on the Bernie Sanders campaign, I'm either going to vote for Bernie or vote for Donald Trump. I would ask these people. I'm like, okay, so I'm confused. Like, how in the world can you want to vote for someone who's uh, about democratic socialist and someone who just wants to break the machine? And they essentially said the system's not working, and we want to fix. It. We want it fixed, and we want to feel like we're being heard. So the Democratic Party, if you have these hard conversations that make people feel like they're being heard, then you can have the conversations about policy. But you can't have any message if the person feels like you're being condescending and looking at them in a pejorative
3: fashion. Like that's just that's just impossible. Reggie, hello. Can you put that in a nice pithy 140 characters answer? Trump style. Uh,
0: um, talk to people's hearts. Don't talk above them. Talk to them. Dad.
2: It's hardly make America great again, is it? I
3: mean, that's the problem.
0: <laughs> it,
3: t- it took you a bit, huh? And, and I think that is massively goes to the heart of the problem, doesn't it? Is that the, the answer Dad. on the left is much more nuanced uh, and and hedges a- about the future whereas the easy answer on on the right is just we're just going to turn the clock back there you go sad yep sad
4: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax
1: and think about
4: work you really really want it all to work out while you're away
3: In an uncertain world, there is always music, which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday Fifteen, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes, and allocate fifteen minutes to both.
4: I mean, I was eight years old. Interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was, was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in um, in a classroom for a year. And awesome, yeah. Um, for me. I well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to, to win in the end is that for me it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together.
3: Catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every Friday afternoon on Friday 15, which you can get of course from a podcatcher of your choice.
4: Hello, I'm Lucy and this is Walkie Talkie. I walk my dog, Basil, uh, pretty much every day in a foresty bit of London. Um, I have been doing so for about four years and I meet people that, as a dog walker, you talk to people. Um, If your dogs get on, you tend to just, you say, which way are you going? Can I come with you? and you just sort of amble along and you can end up having the most extraordinary conversations. Partly because uh, you are walking side by side and facing front so there's no embarrassing eye contact. If things get a bit heavy, if someone starts talking about something that they find emotional or difficult then you can always divert your attention onto the dogs and relieve the tension a little bit. We've seen, as a group of dog walkers, we've seen um, people get pregnant, have children. We've seen people whose dogs have become ill and died and the owner says, oh, I can never have another one. And then in a couple of months' time, they appear with a puppy and everyone's delighted to see them. And um, We've seen people's marriages break down, new romances start. It's a lovely way to start your morning, it never fails to give me something, something nice to think about, something interesting to think about, even if it's not nice. And having a dog is a sort of a, a universality, really. The people aren't all like me, as I hope you'll realise over the course of the series.
0: Leading up to the 1860 election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South re- represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860 with no support from the South.
1: The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, Foreign. The details, respecting the presidential election, furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. It is not improbable, too, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election. The next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce Southern declamations and protest, but it's not very likely that any Southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession. Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes, From Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents. The new podcast from Royfield Brown.
3: Uh, Let's move on to the United Kingdom and the EU.
4: We are launching the negotiations on the orderly withdrawal of UK from the EU. Our objective is clear. We must first tackle the uncertainties caused by Brexit, first for citizens, but also for the beneficiaries of the EU policies and for the impact on borders, in particular Ireland. I hope that today... We can identify priorities and a timetable. So, David.
2: Michel, thank you very much for that uh, kind invitation, that kind uh, uh, introduction. Uh, I'm in here in Brussels today, like Michel, to begin the next phase of our work to build a new, deep and special partnership with
1: the European Union.
3: John Elledge, we're going to start with you, sir. So, Theresa May and her team are now sat opposite the EU and Brexit negotiations have started. Um, What is the most important thing that Britain needs to extract from these negotiations first and why?
2: I think that's looking at the wrong way. I think at the moment the most important thing in the negotiations is in fact what the EU 27 can extract from Britain in terms of what exactly it is we want, because no one on the British side of the table has managed to articulate exactly what Britain would like. We're still having a debate about whether we want to be in the single market, whether we want to be in the customs union. What People say take back control, but no one's managed to explain exactly what that means. It so far looks like taking back control will largely mean having to put in a whole set of regulatory mechanisms to deal with laws other people give us, rather than us actually having any control over them. It's mystifying. The noises coming from the European side of the table are still just, they have absolutely no idea what the May government's agenda is here, and what—and you can't negotiate with someone when you don't know what their starting position is. Um,
3: Reggie, I know you're a big Europhile, um, okay, you are sat in those negotiations. Forget your own personal feelings about Brexit. Where exactly would you start, and why?
0: I think it depends on the perspective. Uh, one of the things, uh, having lived in the European Union, the the EU was about freedom of movement, economic co- economic cooperation, and mutual security. And uh, I think that, to John's point earlier in the show. The Brexit vote came from people who felt economically dislocated and scared, and so they viewed it as having a lack of opportunity. The problem is that there seems to be a reform by uh, chainsaw mechanism going on. So, if I were on the EU side, um, I've got to protect the the rest of the member states. And so, to John's point of uh, with. The U.K. seeming to go back and forth about what they want. Is it a cake and eat it too perspective or is it a softer version? Um, That's not a strong negotiating position. So from the EU perspective, I've got to protect my union. Um, From the U.K. perspective, I think that uh, any negotiation should have economic security because London is one of the financial capitals of the world. Um, And it seems as though willfully diminishing the economic cooperation between the UK and the EU is doing a disservice to that.
3: John, the one thing which even the most rabid Brexiteer is not really going to um, compromise is military security. And I know that isn't really the part of the EU, but... It does filter down from NATO. So it starts at NATO, and then we have various European wide agreements around security to do with terror. So that's going to be left in, in, in place. Um, we are the easiest thing to get rid of is surely our our subservience to the European Court of Human Rights. Isn't that just like quite an easy thing? And at least it's symbolically gets a lot of those brexiteers who talk about the sovereignty of parliament but also of the judiciary of being paramount in britain at least it gets them kind of off our backs and then we can have the softest of softest brexits would you agree
2: the problem with attacking the european court of human rights is the european court of human rights is not in fact a part of the european union It's a completely different organization. This is half the problem. It's just the sheer level of ignorance of. uh, Uh,
3: uh, Apologies uh, apologies for coming uh, into your house
2: and calling you ignorant. (laughs) (laughs) The the sheer level of ignorance (laughs) (laughs) in this country about what the EU is and how it functions. And, you know, we could have pulled out of the European Court of Human Rights uh, completely separately from Brexit. It's a totally different thing.
3: It's just sorry, I'm just I'm just I'm just infuriated by this whole John 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 John, 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 I must admit I I did say that deliberately, all right. However, however, you know, know, Brexit is a trigger issue for me. Well, I know, know? but 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 it's but it's (laughs) it's key, but it's absolutely key to this though, isn't it? Is actually actually people understanding one second is people actually understanding which bits of the EU were in effect um, over you, over British law and which which bit of British sovereignty was actually given away to, to another body, shall we say. And it's incredibly confusing for most people.
2: I think we have a problem that goes back decades. That it's, not, it's not unique to Britain, but I think elsewhere on the continent it's been counterbalanced by by, by uh, clearer views of the benefits of the EU but the problem we've got is that domestic politicians have time and again when they haven't been able to deliver something they've blamed Brussels they've said well they've turned around to the electorate and said well obviously we'd love to we'd, we'd love to deal with this problem but unfortunately because of EU legislation
3: yeah.
2: and and so and because you know Britain was never an occupied country in the That's, 20th century that's what Almost uniquely in the EU twenty-eight, I think it's just yeah. Britain and Sweden were never occupied by a foreign power.
3: Well, and so n- don't n- neither Spain, it is to be Spain, or, Spain or, or Portugal else. as well. But that—that that, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. But there are yeah. other countries as well. Um, you know, as I said, Sweden, as you said, Spain, Portugal haven't been well, occupied. Well, Spain and Portugal both had to put up with fascist dictatorship. So it's
2: absolutely. Like, it's Absolutely, but but still, they don't have this narrative of their own political stability and post-imperial greatness that Britain is lumbered with because we're Mm -hmm. neurotic about it. And I think that if I had the power, I would remove the word sovereignty from the dictionary because I think it's completely meaningless. It's like,
3: well, if we we, know what it means, John, it can't be meaningless, can it? If we know what sovereignty
2: is, yeah, sovereign, and that North Korea can do what the hell it likes within the boundaries of North Korea. I would much rather be Luxembourg where you're rich and free and happy and you don't need a bloody nuclear missile program to kind of show what a big dick you have on the world stage. But for some reason, we've all got obsessed with this idea that, you know, if we just leave the EU, we can take back sovereign power of our own destiny. And it's nonsense because, you know, we used to have sovereign power uh, to a relative extent because we were a great power, one of the world's leading empires. And we just aren't that anymore. You can't just magic that back. Leaving the EU will make us smaller and less in control rather than bigger and more in control. And I wish the whole thing would go away, quite frankly. And don't troll me about the European Convention of Human Rights. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: but I've been told.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing.
3: Um, Reggie. Yes. <laughs> um, is it true to say that one of the reasons why Britain has ended up in this place is because we don't really know what the hell we're doing in in the global stage since 1945. You know, the Germans and the French are really running the EU. The Americans have got all the nukes. Uh, The Russians, um, up until the early 1990s, at least they had an alternative political philosophy. The Chinese uh, have this burgeoning economy. Britain is just kind of floating along. Um, Please tell us that my analysis is wrong. Tell us that there is a place for Britain... As, as a future significant country? I
0: think that the UK, um, as with aspects of uh, many countries, but the UK specifically, has got to go a, uh, through a soul-searching but also a rebranding process. You know, you can't rely on neo-colonial or
3: post-imperialist, uh, we used to be this. Um, but you know what, UK- though, Reggie? I'm going to jump in, mm. right? I think a lot of... I, I obviously agree with a lot of John's analysis, okay? Mm. Right but I think your average young Brit, yeah. doesn't think in that kind of neo colonialist way you know they you, vote. You, 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 well, they did in the last election, which is the reason why the Labour Party did so well, and that was in part but, because they right. didn't re- vote in 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 you know in the, brexit, in the brexit. yeah in the brexit yep. referendum right, but right. I want you instead of saying what we sh- the way that we should look to the future right. because we're probably all three of us going to be in agreement, what does Britain Britain stand for for you? You're a yank. You've spent Uh, time in Britain and in Europe. What does Britain mean to you? Serious question.
0: Uh, I think Britain does far better than I've seen anywhere in the world of being a welcoming place, at least in London, uh, a welcoming place for Uh, all nationalities. That's
3: that's where you're slightly going wrong here, because London is not Britain. I understand that. I understand that. Um, And I think that that is part of the problem
0: right so there is a a londoner and a uk perspective like how do you marry those two and then market back to the world to me the uk is open open markets open culture the best of education and research globally like
3: why why can't that be enough is that going to be enough for us john or isn't really just the fact that we need to batten down the hatches and control immigration that's what it this is that's what it's all about john that's what I mean... What
2: concerns me is not that that is not enough. It's that both our sort of, you know, the, the quality of our higher education system and our commitment to sort of open borders, open culture, open ideas, all those things in now are up for grabs. Like yeah. the university sector is united in warning that Brexit is a terrible idea. Correct. Um, and I'm worried that we are moving away from this vision of what, of what the future should be because we can't get our... It's, uh, and, you know, as you say, like, largely speaking, the younger generation don't feel like this and often are more pro-European. And a lot of people are infuriated. They are losing their European passport. They will lose the right to live right. in 27 other countries. This is kind of the last revenge of, of the baby boomer generation. You know, they they had all the advantages of the welfare state. Then they dismantled it. Now they're <laughs> taking us out of the European Union. And they're basically telling their kids to fuck off. And, you know, the the horrible thing is, if you kind of look at the demographics of that referendum result, if you just do it purely on the basis of the number of people who die through natural wastage in a couple of years time with no other change in views, the electorate would probably come out for Remain. Mm-hmm. But we don't get to play this one again. We don't get to do this referendum again. So. So, yeah, it's a massive act of national self-sabotage. Because some um, old people are not
3: happy that they have a Polish plumber now. It's really I- Reggie, go.
0: I have a question. So going back to the negotiations with, uh, you know, Article 50, how can you be negotiating your position when the clock is ticking on the negotiation time? How does that play out politically? And I'm, that, that's something that confuses me. That
2: confuses everyone,
3: mate. No one's yeah, got an answer. No, 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 absolutely, no one's got got an answer, and it just means okay. that there are going to be even more landmines and and grenades thrown into British politics for for the next two years. Because okay. at, at each point when anything significant is being negotiated, um, and in, and it comes back to Parliament, this government, which is flimsy at best, you know, a minority mm-hmm. government, which is being propped up by a bunch of Let's be quite <laughs> honest about it. Um, at best, ex-terrorists,
0: you yes. so, wow.
3: right, is on incredibly shaky ground. And I think one of the one of the first hurdles that needs to be negotiated by by the Tory Party is the Tory conference. If mm-hmm. if Theresa May can get through that and the next remaining weeks afterwards, well, well, then I think we, we get through to just after Christmas. But if she doesn't have a barnstorming conference, and then the first, you know, the first significant bits of the negotiations are seen not to go well, she will be replaced mm-hmm. um, mid-autumn. What do you reckon, John?
2: No, I reckon they'll keep her as long as they can. They wanted to own it.
3: I oh, like what it. is she going to own? What is she going to own? You've got David Davis sitting in the wings, a con, uh, you know, a committed Brexiteer ideologically. Nobody doubts that he's sincere in wanting. Britain out of the out of the eu but he's seen as somebody who is at least competent and if we are going to have a soft brexit one second john john just bear with me okay so he's not competent but his sincerity's ideological sincerity on brexit cannot be faulted whereas theresa mays people just say well you just flip-flopped you know you didn't believe in this up until June of last year, then all of a sudden you've come out as a Brexiteer and potentially a hard Brexiteer. David Davis, in the last two weeks, has made noises about, hmm, maybe we've got to think about industry, we've got to think about business, and having the hardest of the hardest brexits is maybe not the way to go. Maybe it's a bit like Nixon doing a deal with China. Actually, what you want is somebody who ideologically has nailed their colours to the mast historically to actually sell to the Tory right the softest of soft Brexits. Am I completely and utterly an optimist and a fruit loop? (laughs) I mean, I
2: think you're right insofar as activating Article 50 was an incredibly dumb move it's like you in know in, in a whole succession of dumb moves theresa moves uh, theresa may has made that one was particularly stupid because it just it's the only card we had to play she started the top the clock ticking and then she called an election she's you know just no tactical thinking there whatsoever i suspect she did that because as you say she was i suspect she, i mean i think she's probably always been quietly for leave but publicly she was on the remain side in the run-up to the referendum. So I suspect she activated Article 50 to show how serious she was about Brexit so she didn't get murdered by her own right wing. I think the, but I think where you're wrong is that, you know, if a David Davis or another sort of full-throated lever were to take over, the problem is they really believe this stuff. Mm-hmm. They would not kind of move us towards a softer Brexit because it's better for Britain. They would be more, be more likely, I think, to crash out without a deal. At which point we're probably looking at you know literally the collapse of our international trade with all sorts of economic consequences that we can't
3: even work out at this point, John. And I know I am an eternal optimist, and you and I. It's one of the, one of the reasons why I I do love kind of working with you, sir, because you and I are two opposite sides of the same coin. You are a dyed in the wool pessimistic bastard, right? But even <laughs> even the most dyed in the wool brexiteers have been saying in in the last two or three weeks tell me if i'm wrong that we need to be careful of the impact on the economy if they are saying anything it is that david davis was one of the key tory politicians that said hmm well no we do have to think about the economy yeah
2: I I don't know. I've not seen enough of that to feel better about it. I think there are certainly people in the cabinet coming out and saying that because, you know, Theresa May's authority is so destroyed by the election that basically everyone around her is now just saying what the hell they like. There's no party line anymore. But my sense is not that the true believers are ready to accept that we will have to accept some elements of the single market and the customs union. In fact, the message I've been getting is the exact opposite, and that people like, like my 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 good friend, the Conservative MEP Daniel Hannan, <laughs> ha- have been ha- have been who, who you know in the run up to the election were were saying nobody is talking about threatening our position in the single market. They're now talking about how if we don't come out of things like the customs union. Then there's no point in having Brexit because we're still going to be affected in some way by EU rules. And the problem is, it's very difficult to see how we can keep up the level of trade we have with the EU now and not be subject to EU rules because, you know, they will be the bigger market. We have to play by their rules. So our choices are basically either stay in and accept we're going to have to live by some rules we will no longer have control over or come out and have complete freedom over these things. But get a whole lot poorer,
3: which is where my North Korea analogy comes into it. John Ellidge, you've had the last word. And as always, we've left on an optimistic note. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly, gentlemen, because we know that John yeah. has to rush. Uh, takeaways of the week. I'm going to start with you over in the good old US of A, because it's your, it's your, it's your birthday today. So um, you go first. <laughs> uh, tell us what your takeaway the last seven days has been.
0: Uh, Royfield, like you, I am a bit of a music uh, fanatic, and uh, I feel kind of sad in saying this, but I just found out about this artist for the first, ni- first time. His name is Kamasi Washington, mm-hmm. and I heard his album called The Epic. Uh, it is three hours long, um, and it's the first time in quite some time that uh, two songs moved me to tears. Uh, so I've been enraptured in that music um, because it seems very liberating and free, and what a better way to celebrate the Fourth of July than talking about liberation and
3: freedom. Perfect. John Elledge, what about yours, sir? And you can't have something you've watched on Netflix as you do every time we speak. (laughs) Okay, uh, in which case
4: I will
2: instead (laughs) do something I've watched on BBC One.
4: (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: this, week, this week was the season finale of the latest season of Doctor Who as I, you know, I tend to keep this quiet so people probably don't realise but I'm a massive nerd. That's something a lot of people don't know about me. Um, and it was, was. Particularly, it was a particularly great season. You know, lots, of, lots of terrific pieces of television in there. So I'm just going to recommend that to the world, really.
3: All right, fantastic. My uh, take over the last seven days, it's really been something which has kind of blown my mind for the last, what, three years or so, is just Shazam. It is the one app on my phone that I use and every time it matches up a song, I just, my, my mind is blown by another degree as to how this technology works. So people for people that don't know, Shazam is an app um, on on your smartphone, which allows you to record a little bit of music that you've heard and then it tells you what that piece of music is. And it allows me to apparently be much more informed and hip and cool and groovy, said with utter irony, in terms of in terms of just my musical knowledge. And wherever I go, obviously my phone is with me. But I go to a bar, I go to any kind of establishment, even just walking down the road, you hear an interesting piece and you go, what's that? And I and I just use it within all of my kind of podcasts that I produce. And it's allowed me to rediscover old artists that i would kind of forgotten that I love, like the LCD sound system or like Hot Chip, or new artists which I didn't even know existed, people like Daniel Norgan, a Swedish guy that does kind of bluesy stuff, through to just remembering old classics like kind of Tom Petty uh, and kind of Chris Isaac. So, um i just absolutely love shazam and each time it works it's a little minor miracle so that's my take over the last seven days shazam is the app of all apps Uh, but just quickly before we all quickly go quickly john tell us how people catch up with you on social media
4: Uh,
2: i'm easiest to find on twitter where i'm at john ellidge which is j-o-n-n-e-l-l-e-d-g-e how about you reggie instagram
0: and twitter o reggie global uh facebook reginald hubbard
3: and you can catch up with me on twitter where i am at Roy but r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d this week has been a special week we've had two mid-atlantics but the, the old fearsome trio is back. Also, you can catch up with us on Twitter where we're at Mid Atlantic Show. The website is midatlanticshow.com. And also if you type in Mid-Atlantic onto Facebook, you can bump into us there. Remember, you can have uh, your chance to reply by going on to midatlanticshow.com where you can hit the red tab over on the right and you can send us uh, a voicemail. So if you have disagreed with anything that we said in the last show, you do have your right to reply to go and hit that red button. We'll see you all again very soon. Here
1: in this far-